Brilliant. If you've got a Bible, please open up to Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to continue looking through this wonderful chapter. Uh, While you're turning there, uh, let me tell you about a book that Claire and I and the kids have just finished. We've been listening to this audio book as we've been driving around in the car together. And it was called A Night Divided by uh, a lady called Jennifer Nielsen, who is a New York Times bestselling author. And she wrote this book, A Night Divided. And it's a, it's a historical fictional thriller that dramatizes the experience of those who grew up and lived in Germany after the Second World War. And uh, with the, the construction of the Berlin Wall in August of 1961, uh, 12-year-old Greta, who's the uh, central character, finds her family is suddenly divided as, as her, her dad and her, uh, her, sort of her middle brother go off to the West in search of a new home and a new job. Uh, they're away for the weekend, and in the middle of that, uh, uh, that time that they're away, the East German government puts up the Berlin Wall and divides her family. They can't get across to the West, and nobody from the West can get back to the East. And so Greta and her mother and another of her brothers are stuck in East Germany, and they know that this wall has divided their family, but they know that there's nothing that they can do, that thoughts of freedom are forbidden, that they can't cross the wall, or otherwise they will die. And as she continues to live her life over the next four years, she realizes that the East German soldiers have made them prisoners in their own city. As their guns are turned on their own citizens, she realizes that they are stuck. And the book is brilliant. It, it recounts life in East Germany under um, the, the Soviet communist government. And so there's lots of political tyranny and there's lots of economic backwardness and um, There's increasing suspicion because of the activities that her and her family are doing amongst their neighbors and their friends, that no one can be trusted, all while the author sort of deals with this idea of what does it really mean to be truly free. So if you can listen to it, it's great. It paints this contrasting picture between what the bulk of the East Germans put up with under the oppression and the repression of the Soviet government and Greta and her ability to survive and to thrive under that same oppression. And it kind of leaves you with the question of, well, what what makes the difference in Greta's life? That although she experiences the same things as everybody else around her, she's able to look above the barbed wire and the concrete wall to something that helps her think that there is life beyond the barbed wire and the concrete wall, and that's hope. That even though everything else is snatched away from her, even though her father and her brother are separated, even though their freedoms are gone, even though they're struggling economically, everything else could be snatched away from her, but she's got hope. Hope that one day things will be different, and it makes her invincible. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 writes to people who have lost sight of the future. Isaiah is addressing a group of people who are giving up and giving in because of the situations that they find themselves in, because, if you like, of the barbed wire and the concrete walls that surround them. And so he comes in the midst of this people who have 
got questions, their resolve has been weakened, their faith has been shaken, and he begins to infuse hope to them. He's trying to lift their eyes above the barbed wire and the concrete wall to a hope that if they grab hold of it will make them invincible. So we're going to read again, uh, this time from verses 27 to the end of chapter 31, and then I want us to look at three things that God draws our attention to that will help us. Here's what God has to say. Verse 27, Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk. And not faint. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it addresses us in the here and now. That it's not just good for ancient peoples 3,000 years ago in their situation. But the timeless truths of your word speak right into our hearts on the 20th of October 2019. And we pray that you would do that right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. To encourage us. And give us a hope that makes us invincible in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as I, as I prayed, this is not just a word for people who lived 3,000 years ago. It's a, it's, a people, it's a word for people like us today. And three things that God wants us to get our heads and our hearts around this morning. Isaiah is going to address our despair. Then he's going to address us on our God. And then he's going to point us to our hope. So that's, that's where we're going this morning under those three headings. So let's begin with this first one. As Isaiah addresses us, addresses us in our despair. So as I said, he's been prophesying to a group of Jews who have been exiled from their homeland to Babylon, and they now feel as if because of the circumstances of life and because of the direction that their lives have taken, they feel like they've slipped off of God's radar, that he no longer sees them. And that he no longer cares. And they're beginning, uh, after decades of, of captivity, they're sort of beginning to teeter on the edge of despair. Maybe it was fun for a while. Well, I've never been to Babylon. The hanging gardens, that looks cool. The big statues, that might be great. But over time, they've realized that they've been cut off from God and from the land and from, of God, from God's promises. And these feelings of abandonment that they feel... And the feelings of isolation that they feel has poisoned their minds and led them to make accusations against God. So if you imagine this, they would have grown up believing we're God's people, we live in God's place, and we live under God's rule. But now we live in a far off place. And we've been surrounded by pagan peoples and we live under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. What's happened? 
It's not just that they're facing difficult circumstances. The situation that they find themselves in is making them question their whole identity as the people of God. Does he really know us? Does he really love us? You know, when things were going well for the Jews in the Old Testament, they would turn their backs on God and reject him. But when things got bad and they felt that, their, that life was going pear-shaped, their immediate question is, why is God dealing with us like this? And that's the accusations that we find. So Isaiah comes with questions that perhaps he's heard from them in verse 27 when they're saying, they, this is the questions that they're saying. They're saying, my way is hidden from God. That perhaps they remembered being close to him at some point, but now they felt cut off. The relationship that they once enjoyed with God was now distant and cold. Does God really see what's happening to us? They were asking themselves. Is, is my way, my way, it feels like it's hidden from the Lord. And they were experiencing despair, but then it was spiraling down because look at what they say next. They say, my right, the things that I deserve, my rights are being disregarded by God. So not only were they saying God doesn't see us, but they were saying God doesn't care about us. In fact, in the, in the original Hebrew language, it the, the word my right is being disregarded has this kind of continuous sense that maybe you, would, you might say it like this. I am praying and praying and praying and he never ever lifts a finger to help me. That's what they were saying. I keep on asking and he keeps on ignoring. Doesn't he care? When they were having such a difficult time, they were spiraling down. Why, does, why is this happening? Why does he let God... Why does God's people suffer? Where is he when we need help? And if we're honest, we ask the same questions, I think, don't we, sometimes? When things go wrong, when life goes pear-shaped, we ask the same questions. Maybe sometimes they're accusationary questions. Where's God in this? Doesn't he love me? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he think about me? Maybe they're theological questions. Or perhaps he doesn't have the power that I thought he had. Perhaps he doesn't have the knowledge that I thought he had. Perhaps he's not really good like I thought he was. I'm sure many of us have experienced a situation where we felt that God doesn't care about us because of the way that we feel he's treated us. The barbed wire and the concrete walls of life have made us question things. To lose sight of God and then spiral into despair because we can't square what we know with what we don't know. How does this add up? I thought God was good, but this isn't good that's happening to me. I thought he was faithful, but he seems to abandon me. I thought he was powerful, but he doesn't seem to change things. And I don't know what that might be. Maybe even right now you feel that way, and I, I don't know what that could be. It could be a work for parents or your siblings or marital pressures or a parenting issue that's going wrong. Maybe it's a desire to be married and you keep asking and God just doesn't answer our prayers. Maybe it's loneliness or a sickness. Maybe it's just that being paralyzed by guilt because of sins that just keep cropping up in your life over and over again. And our feelings of abandonment and isolation quickly lead to accusation. Now, there's a couple of ways in which we doubt as Christians, I think. If you think about doubt for a while, there's one way in which we struggle with our faith. 
So in the face of, as, as Shakespeare called them, the, the kind of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, we have all sorts of questions that go through our mind as we struggle to reconcile our knowledge of God with what we see with our eyes in front of us. And we have doubts and we have questions, but we want to find the answers. We want to search the scriptures. We're willing to listen to what God has to say to us. So it's a, it's a struggling faith. But sometimes... The other, another kind of doubt sets in. It's kind of like a, it's a cynical, defiant unbelief where we say even though good and sufficient reasons have been shared with us and presented to us, we, we fold our arms and we say there is nothing in this world that is going to make me change my mind. And our hearts harden as we refuse to hear what God has said. Now, Israel floated between these two camps back and forward. And, and I think sometimes we do as well. We float between these two camps. Because we're human. But Isaiah has the perfect answer for us. Because he's going to tell us that the problem lies not in the God that we hope in. But in our tragic and, and total inability to get hold of who he is, that we have too low, too human understanding and expectations of who God is. So don't let me leave you in your despair because Isaiah doesn't do that. He's going to lift our eyes above the barbed wire and the concrete walls to see now our God. The second point this morning, our God. Now, before we hear what Isaiah is about to remind us of about our God, just hear again the tone in which Isaiah speaks to the people. The tone in which God addresses his people. Because in verse 27, he says this, doesn't he? Why do you say, O Jacob? And why do you speak, O Israel? Now, Jacob and Israel, these are two Old Testament names that spoke about the people of God. They were their identity. Despite that they were struggling in faith and oscillating between that and a kind of a cynical, defiant unbelief. Despite that, despite their struggles, God tells them, you're still my people. You're still Jacob. You're still Israel to me. He doesn't disown them because of their views. He doesn't disregard them. He doesn't despise them. He, he comes to them and he says, listen, I want you to know not only how great I am for you, but also I want you to know how significant you are to me. You're Jacob. You're Israel. You're my people. And so although it feels as if I've abandoned you, I want you to know you're still my People And of course, it runs from the beginning of chapter 40, verse 1, where God says, comfort, comfort, keep on speaking comfort to my people. So even in the struggling faith and the cynical, defiant unbelief, God comes and he says, listen, it's a gentleness to his correction. And this is what he's got to tell us about our God in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? So he kind of re retorts with two questions of his own. Have you not heard? He says, don't, don't just judge everything by what you see with your eyes. Remember the things that you have heard with your ears. It's kind of like Isaiah's way of saying what Paul will say later on in Romans 10, that faith comes through hearing the word. 
So Isaiah wants them to, he wants to stir up their faith, not by calling to mind what they see, but by telling them to remember what they've heard. And what is it that they've heard? Well, verse 28 then really is a summing up of everything that he's been saying in the previous 27 verses. You see this as we go through. In four lines, he recalls everything that he said since the beginning of chapter 40. So in verse 28, he begins by telling God is the everlasting God, or literally, he's the God of eternity. That God, the God that we worship, the God that we serve, the God that is our God, that we belong to, he's not confined or bound by the pressures and the stresses and the limitations and the deadlines of living in space and time. He's the eternal God. He's not temporary. He's everlasting. He's not subject to change. The writer of the Hebrews will say, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Whereas we live in the here and the now with this little segment of history that we call today. God sees all things, the end from the beginning. And he's always way out ahead of us. When we look on and we say, life seems so contradictory. This happens and then that happens and I can't put the two together. It doesn't make sense to me, but God knows because he sees the end from the beginning. Your today is always in God's mind. Do you ever think about that? Your today is always in God's mind because he knows all things at all times. So when we say stuff like, has God forgotten my pain or my situation, or my challenge, Isaiah would say to you, he can't. Because it's always in his mind. And when we say stuff like, has God moved on from my pain and my situation? Isaiah would say to you, he can't move on. Because he's everlasting. And he always has your today. In his mind. So when we feel anxious, God is not. Because God says, I know how this is going to turn out. I know how I'm using this. When we're weary, God is not. Because he's not subject to the ravages of living in space and time like you and I. God is not weary because he's everlasting. He's the infinite source of all power and strength. When we get disillusioned, God is not. Because he's not finished with his working in our lives. As Paul reminds us in Philippians 1.6. And so Isaiah would draw us together and he, he would say, he probably wouldn't say it as flippantly at this, as this, and I don't mean it flippantly, but he's, he would say like, you know, if life gives you lemons, don't panic. Don't panic. When things are going pear-shaped, don't panic. If things aren't coming together according to your ways and your deadlines, don't panic. Because God is working out his perfect purpose at his perfect place. And he does so without the unhurried, urgent nervousness that we apply to stuff. Because he's the everlasting God. But look at also what Isaiah tells us about this everlasting God. Remember, at the beginning of the sentence, he says, the Lord, in in small caps. And we we know that to mean 
that, that when it says in the Old Testament, Lord, in small caps, that's God's personal name, his covenant name towards his people. That's what he calls himself at the burning bush with Moses. I am Yahweh, the Lord. So he's not just eternal and transcendent and glorious and other from us. He's also personal. He's identifying himself as a personal God who moves into relationship with people. I'm Yahweh. You're Jacob and Israel. We're friends. We're family. He has an intimate and personal, detailed knowledge of us. He doesn't just manifest his everlasting power in general and generic ways. He does it particularly and peculiarly to individuals. And so one of the greatest things that Isaiah has to tell us this morning is that the everlasting God has time for us. Think about Jesus when he's hanging on the cross. I was thinking about this this week. Remember, that Jesus is hung on the cross. His nails have been, uh, his hands have been nailed to that wooden tree, and he's hanging, hanging between heaven and hell. And in the midst of untold physical agony and untold spiritual agony, as he's kind of outworking a cosmic salvation, he has time to say, John. Look after my mum. And he has time to say to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise today. That's how our God works. The everlasting God who cares for his people. But then he goes on, he says, the creator of the ends of the earth, that God has made the world and everything in it, and he gives life and breath and being to everything in it, and he sustains the world and everything in it. From one end to the other, from the ends of the earth, God is the creator and the sustainer. There is not one square centre's range or beyond his knowledge or beyond his presence or beyond his power. So when we say, can he really save me from this? Can he really deliver me from this? Does he see? Does he know? Isaiah says, yeah, because he made everything. And he made you. And he made the ground you walk on, the space you occupy, the time you exist in, and all of your life and circumstances. And he's keeping you together at the subatomic level. And if he ceased to do that, you disintegrate. So yeah, he knows what's going on. He's the creator of the ends of the earth from one side to the other. So if life takes you to Babylon or to a hospital intensive care unit, God's already there. And he's there with you. Everything is under his mighty hand and in his precise control. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He does not grow faint or grow weary. That means God is always at work. God is always at work. We go to work and we come home tired. We, some of us don't go to work and we still are tired. But God doesn't tire. We need nourishment and sleep every day. You know, I read recently, I've been reading a book on sleep. It tells us we, we spend one third of our lives in bed asleep. And yet we still get up and someone says, how are you doing? And what's the first thing that usually comes out of your mouth? Oh, I'm really tired. And then we, we spend one third of our lives in bed trying to rest. And then we get up and we work and we repeat for maybe 70 years and then we die. 
And then someone puts on our gravestone, RIP, rest in peace. And we think, well, I don't know. They're worm food now. But God is always at work. Tirelessly. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't need rest. He doesn't need recuperation or renewal. He's always fresh. He's always alert. He's always able to help us. He never lacks the power to be able to accomplish his plans. He never faces a situation where he's uncertain or hapless. There's no situation that is too complex for him. There's no situation where it gets beyond his control, where it requires an amendment to the plan. Or where it requires an 11th hour reprieve or an intervention where he has to go back to the drawing board and come up with plan B. No, he doesn't do that because he doesn't have to do that. And no matter how chaotic our lives might feel, Isaiah would say to us, God is always at work. He does not faint and grow weary. He does not take time off and then as he's resting and recuperating, your life is spun out of control. No, he's always, always in control of your circumstances. Always, always. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, this won't come up on the screen. But it says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. And then Isaiah tells us God is wise. Look at that fourth sentence. His understanding is unsearchable. So not only is God an inexhaustible, undiminishing fountain of divine power and energy and strength, but his knowledge and his wisdom are unsearchable or unfathomable. No one can get to the bottom of it and measure how deep they run. You know, the internet and Google and Wikipedia will tell you that they have, they've charted all knowledge but they haven't charted knowledge of God. They haven't got the skinny on God's nature and character and being and ways. Oh, but as humans, we think we can, don't we? We think we, think we can understand God. We think that we, can know, we deserve to know what he's doing, that we should get an explanation for the way that life is turning out. And Isaiah would come to us and he would say, no, no, no. We live by faith, not by explanation. You know, we face a situation and we look on and we can think, okay, well, I think that I can work out one to maybe three things that God is doing through this situation that I am facing. And we forget, as we heard a few weeks ago, a quote by John Piper who says, no, God is working 10,000 things in your life that you don't know anything about. And he's also overlapping the 10,000 things he's doing in your life with 10,000 things that he's doing in someone else's life and 10,000 other people in 10,000 other places. And he's doing that all at the same time. You think you can work him out? No, because he's weaving a tapestry that eventually is going to be flipped over and we're going to see the glory and the wisdom and the beauty and the love and the mercy and the grace of our God to the praise of his glory. So I would say this to you this morning, if your life isn't exactly the way that you would like it to be, you can be absolutely sure that it's exactly the way God wants it to be. 
That's what Isaiah tells us here. That's the implication of verse 28. Believer, if your inheritance be a lowly one, you should be satisfied with your earthly portion. For you may rest assured that it is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river now. In one part of the stream, there is a sandbank. And someone might ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line? His answer would be this, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep it to the deep channel. So it may be with you. You would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine, and it may be that you are planted where you get little, but you are put there by the loving husbandman, because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection." Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are in, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry out, Lord, choose my inheritance for me, for by my own self-will I'm pierced through with many sorrows. Be content then with such things as you have. Since the Lord has ordered all things for your good, take up your own daily cross, for it is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove the most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. So down your busy self and your proud impatience. It is not for you to choose, but for the Lord of love. That's what Isaiah is telling us in verse 28, just in Victorian language. I'd say it this way, don't let your feelings and your circumstances redefine God. Don't let your circumstances and your feelings redefine God. Instead, let the truth of who God is here in Isaiah 40, redefine how we view our circumstances and address our feelings. For Isaiah wants us to know our God is greater than we can imagine and he is better than we can ever dream. And that leads us to our final point this morning, our hope. Having seen our despair and then processing it through the lens of our God, he now leads us to see our hope. Look at the hope that we have in verse 29. God, this great God, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. This God is willing to share with us what he's got so that we can experience his power and his strength at work in our lives. Imagine if you were a struggling Jew at the time, hearing this for the very first time. Weak, tired, weary, discouraged, complaining. Maybe that's you this morning. Feel like quitting because of the barbed wire and the concrete walls of life that is oppressing you. 
Isaiah comes and he says, listen, humans grow weak. Verse 30, even youths, even the young people, they grow faint and are weary. Even young men, that, that reference to young men means those who would serve in the army. Those who are in their prime. Those who are, who are regarded as the strongest of humankind. Even they faint and grow weary. Even they fall over exhausted and collapse. Isaiah says, you know, humans, we're really no match for the demands of life. Tired? No surprises. It's not because you didn't get a good night's sleep last night. It's because you're a human. Because we're creatures, not the creator. We were never intended to live in self-sufficiency. We were intended and designed to be dependent upon God and his all-sufficiency. So now the question is, well, then how do you tap in? If he shares this power and might so that we won't grow faint and we might increase in strength, how do you tap into that? Now we want to know, don't we? Well, here's what he says in verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Oh, I don't like waiting. Do you? Whether it's in the doctor's office or in the supermarket or just at home. Nobody likes waiting. But here God says, if you want to renew your strength, if you want to tap into the unlimited resources of our God, you've got to wait. Oh, that sounds miserable, doesn't it? Wait. But it's not the kind of waiting that we think about when we're in the supermarket checkout or in the doctor's office. The waiting here, it's a word that means to writhe around and wiggle in anticipation. That's the literal kind of depiction of what the word means. It doesn't mean just sitting back and passively counting the minutes that go by, waiting for God to show up. It's more like if you, I don't know, some of you might enjoy sport. So if you watched the rugby yesterday in England in their fine victory over Australia, you know, you see the guys, these big hefty men on their tiptoes, waiting with anticipation to get hold of the ball and charge into some Australian gold and green shirted chap and do damage to him and get the ball across the, the line. There's, they're waiting with excitement about, come on, guess, give me the ball and let me smash them. And, you know, that's the kind of waiting that we're talking about. All right. Or if you don't like sports and you like Bake Off, all right, let you, I mean, I've only watched a few episodes this year, but you see these people and they put their food in the oven and then they go, is it cooked yet? Oh, is it cooked yet? And then, they're, and then they're trying to talk to that Sandy Toxvic and the other chap who replaced Mel and Sue who were far better. And then, they, and then they go back and they're always checking because they're waiting to see, is it done yet? Is it done yet? Is it ready? Is it ready? Though that's the kind of image. So whether it's sport or baking, or if you don't like either, then think about how some people catch a bus. You know, there's always those, you know, lazy people who just sort of slob there with their hoods up usually and they've got earphones in and they're like, I'm waiting for a bus. Yeah. And there was, or there's, there's always the, 
God bless her, the little old lady who's standing on the edge and the bus comes into view and it's still the size of a pinhead and yet she's waving at the bus like, please don't forget me. That's the kind of waiting. It's not killing time. It's not just sitting around drumming your fingers. It's expecting God to work. It's faith. That's leaning in and saying, God, I'm trusting you to work. I don't know how you're going to work, but I'm praying and I'm trusting and I'm looking and I'm calling out to you. And whatever you've got, I'm ready. Help me. I'm clinging to your word. I'm clinging to your promises. I'm clinging clinging to Jesus. I'm waiting. And God says, as you do that, I'll renew your strength. Waiting is not something that you do when you come to the end of yourself and all of your resources and you've reached desperation point. No, Isaiah wants us to say, every single day, go to him, wait for him, look to him, anticipate him, be eager about what he's doing and wait. And as you do that, he will work. It might not be in the way that you think, but it'll be in the way that's best. Waiting involves confessing our hopelessness and and our inability in and of ourselves to act and to understand and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. It's letting God be God. It's embracing his will for our lives and a refusal to try and work out everything in the way that we think is best. It's embracing his sovereignty and his providence and his timing and his provision for us. You know, so often we think waiting means God is depriving us of something. Isaiah would say to you, no, waiting is the way that God changes you. Actually, the word renew in verse 31, where it says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The word renew could actually be translated exchange. Those who wait on the Lord exchange their strength, their miserly, useless, powerless, worthless, wearied, tired, strength, they exchange that for God's strength. So Isaiah says, no, those who wait on the Lord just kind of muster up their own strength and then they can get on with life. No, he says, no, no, no. Those who wait on the Lord make a trade. I trade my weariness for his limitless strength. I trade my inability to do things for his all-sufficiency I trade my lack of understanding for his infinite wisdom. I trade my weakness for his gracious work in my life. And Isaiah would say the limitless glory of God strengthens his weary people when they wait on him. And look at the result. They run and not grow weary. They walk and not grow faint. That doesn't mean you could break the two-hour marathon barrier. That means in the... the daily life of walking and running, the stuff that you do in normal life, God will strengthen you. And he'll give you Red Bull, wings like eagles, spiritual Red Bull that will mount you up so that you'll get a different perspective on life, a different view of who God is, a different perspective on what he is about, a different view on the barbed wire and the concrete walls that oppress. He'll give us wings to soar so that we might see Jesus more clearly. So that we might see beyond the barbed wire and the concrete walls to a hope of eternal life that makes us invincible. That's what God calls us to here. 
And so when you, if you got out of bed this morning and you felt weary and you said, you know what, I just don't think I can do it. Here's what Isaiah would say to you. You're absolutely right. You can't. But God can. Wait for him. Let's pray.